With respect um, to many of our uh, maybe first-time guests or, or if you've just kind of been dating Pilgrim only for a couple of weeks now, uh, I'd like to just kind of put something out there in front of you just real quick. Uh, we have been walking through every single word, every single chapter of Matthew uh, for two main reasons. Number one, um, we, we believe and we see that biblical ignorance is on the rise. Uh, many folks not only probably haven't read even Matthew word for word, may not even be aware of what was the context or what is Jesus actually saying in his ministry and in his life and what was going on around him. Um, the other reason is it protects, uh, I believe, someone in my position. And what I mean is um, just the pastor having the rant of the week. Um, so if there's something I just feel like yelling about or ranting about, uh, I can't just throw it in my sermon. The reason being, if it doesn't match up with the text, it doesn't get preached. And it also then forces me to teach things, preach things, and deal with aspects of Jesus' ministry that, quite frankly, I might not be that big of a fan of. Uh, and so then we are all stretched and uncomfortable as one big happy family. Um, and so I want you to be aware that uh, whenever we get to a, a Matthew chapter 19, this isn't just pulling it out of thin air, it's where we're at. And uh, Jesus has some things that he says in dialogue with the disciples and with the Pharisees that honestly hit probably three, at least three hot button issues uh, in our culture today. And quite frankly, I feel that I would be uh, uh, an irresponsible pastor if I didn't address those things. No doubt it's always easier to skirt. It's always easier not to, to get awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, I want you to be aware that uh, it's not my life's greatest desire uh, to kind of stick my nose into your bedroom or the deepest, darkest corners of your mind or sin in your life that's hidden. Uh, however, uh, it is with great humility and respect, and I hope you sense it that way, uh, that I'm, I'm only trying to bring to you uh, what happened between Jesus and the Pharisees and the disciples. And so with that in mind, we're going to pray about a couple things because what's, what's on the docket uh, this morning is uh, that of marriage, that of divorce, how we understand marriage, how we define marriage, what do we do about the term sexual uh, immorality, and quite frankly in the Greek, which means pornea. And then what are the implications of that in our marriages causes of divorce, so on and so forth. And so um, I hope you're sensing already kind of a heavy topic today. And so uh, we need the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit alone can do, and that's to convict us, to stretch us, uh, but then also to sense the comfort of God's grace to pull us through. Uh, and so I ask at this time if you'd please pray for with me as we lift up our marriages, our relationships, uh, and, and those represented in this place. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you and we love you. For who you are. You're a God of grace. You're a God of mercy and kindness. Uh, God, I ask that you would remove me from the situation. I ask that you would speak uh, directly to the hearts and the minds that are represented in this place. Draw us close to you. Not that we would feel the weight of your judgment, but that if we do feel a sense of conviction this morning, that we would run to you, we would run to your cross and not away from it. It's by your grace and your mercy that you've initiated a relationship with us. And may we know this morning that your deepest desire 
is to pull us in close. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen. Uh, my, my two biggest fans are not here this morning. Uh, Emerson, unfortunately, at 4 a.m. threw up uh, all over her, uh, her little bed. And that's what woke us up at 4 a.m. Uh, and then at 5 a.m., uh, she threw up yet again. And so we went into uh, Duffy hazmat mode. Uh, Mallory dealt with the psychological uh, effects and the cleanup of the child uh, herself. And then I had the baby wipes scrubbing down the bed, not once, but twice, and the wall and everything else. So needless to say, um, it would be easier to be this exhausted on like a Tuesday. Uh, but yet we know God is in control, and for whatever reason, uh, the, the, the state of mind that I bring this morning, uh, because he speaks faithfully through his word, I don't think it really matters what condition I'm in. And so God is going to speak faithfully to you this morning. And so I'd ask at this time that you'd open up to Matthew chapter 19. There's a theme that runs between these three accounts uh, throughout Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, and it's essentially this. Jesus' expectations, Jesus' standards, his idea of what relationship is, what matters to him, flies in the face of the disciples, the teaching of that day, the culture of that day, and their preconceived notions of that day. And there's only these three exchanges in which Jesus takes on, head on, the way that they're thinking, the way the disciples think, and the way the Pharisees think. And what he reveals to us is that, uh, well, really, his ways are not our ways. What he values is not necessarily what we value. And so we're going to pick this up in uh, verse 13, because we're going to close our time in verses 1 to 12. If you could uh, follow along as we pick up in verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now here's what's interesting. Just that little exchange is uh, even in what we call second temple Judaism. Um, children were loved. Children were cherished. But they were never put up on a pedestal in any way, shape, or form as to say uh, they really matter like your life should look like this. Your faith life should look like this. You should model the disposition of the littlest of these, the, the weakest of these. And yet what we see is uh, the, the thinking of that day is someone of Jesus, he has respect in the community. He's a teacher. He has, uh, he, he has a reputation to uphold. And the disciples are just trying to protect that. I mean, come on, you're above this, Jesus. You're above this kid thing. You're above dealing with these children. And Jesus, in just one or two lines, uh, blasts that door right o wide open, that they're way off, that he actually values the least of these, that he actually desires us to be in sheer desperation and dependency on him just as the least of these are to their parents. And so he's already taking on the culture of the day. If we go to verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to enter eternal life? Now I want you to just realize this. Anytime you see the word teacher, Matthew's giving you a clue. Because every time in Matthew, when anyone addresses Jesus' as teacher, they either get rebuffed by Jesus, or they actually end up being hostile towards Jesus. And so what Matthew is telling you, just in the way that this rich man approached Jesus, 
that his heart, while it may not be hostile, uh, in some way, shape, or form, he is not approaching Jesus with an understanding that he is God. Or with a sense of maybe uh, overarching humility, okay? And so this is what he says in verse 17. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? See, the the disciples in the culture of this time would have said that a man who's outwardly pious, a man who lives as he is supposed to live, seemingly within the will of God, oh, and by the way, is filthy rich, they equate his, his love for God, his obedience to God, for being the reason that he's wealthy. So their whole paradigm is that of Abraham, or maybe the story of Job. He follows God, he does the will of God, he seems to be a pious man, and oh look, he's also wealthy. So to the disciples looking at this interaction, it is this man surely is worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet look at the man, look at the question he asks in verse 20, what do I still lack? He's got the world on a string. He's got it all. He's got everything. He's living right. But there's something missing, and he knows it. The problem is, he doesn't realize that it's the one standing in front of him that can fill that need that he's asking about. He doesn't realize it. Verse 21, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? Jesus said to them, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And essentially what Jesus did was this. You seem to be pious. You seem to do the will of God. You seem to love these things. And you want to know what you still lack? You want to meet this standard of God? Well, here, why don't you get rid of your real God? Why don't you get rid of the thing that you really worship? And that's what Jesus does. He goes for the one area in the man's life that was his blind spot. You really want to follow me? Go sell what you really love and come follow me. And the man goes away dejected. And then Jesus tells them, the disciples, there's no way else except through me. Verse 27, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. Follow you. What then will be here for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, uh, follow me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for the sake of me will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Peter asked Jesus, 
So what are we to do if we, we have, we've given up everything to follow you? And what does Jesus say? Well, if you follow me, um, you'll get a nice house in the suburbs. Uh, you'll marry your high school sweetheart. You'll get a minivan, and you'll, then you'll get this nice picket fence. Your kids will get a great education, and you'll live long and prosper, right? That's not what he says. Actually, the things that he's pointing them to, each and every one of the disciples is in the next life. Is what's awaiting for them. He makes no promises actually to how life will go. And actually if you know much about how the disciples' life ends, many of which, um, they're executed in brutal ways. The means with which they would inherit what Jesus just spoke of. Their, their, their final moments on this planet would be horrific. And so Jesus doesn't even address what will come in this life in following him. I want to draw you to now uh, verse 1. Because I think of, of, of this entire chapter, Jesus' exchange with not only the disciples, uh, but also primarily the Pharisees, uh, has really profound implications in our culture today. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. To the other side of the Jordan, the large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. There's your key. They came to test him. That word. They didn't come to ask him something. They came to test him. The only time God ever says to test him is in Malachi. To test God's generosity, his kindness, and his goodness. And he would open up the floodgates of heaven, right? Well, this is a different heart. And so once again, Matthew's letting you in on a little secret. What you're about to hear and the question that's about to be asked is from a place of hostility, not humility. And so here's the question. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now I want to stop right there. If, because this is the, the, our human nature, there's the question. Many of us right now sitting here want to know, well, is it? Is it lawful? What's right? What's wrong? You know, they got a good point. What Jesus is going to begin to push back on, and I want to help you understand, that's the wrong question. Jesus himself will negate this question. It's the wrong question, wrong issue, the wrong way to even look at marriage. And what you're going to see is Jesus is going to hit it head on. He says, haven't you read? He replied that the beginning, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Now, you need to understand a couple things about this exchange with the Pharisees. First of all, they're very well read. Secondly, they know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the vast majority by heart. They also know the oral tradition that was passed down. Okay, and they, they, they are amazing scholars. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, haven't you read? Uh, that would be like me saying to you, oh, haven't you read, um, since you know the first five books of the Bible, um, well, open the cover, and uh, right after the credits part, and then the, uh, you know, the listing of all the scriptures, that page, yeah, turn to the third page where it says Genesis 1. Have you read that? It's a huge insult, because everything he starts quoting is Genesis 1 and 2. So you've amassed all this knowledge, yet you've skipped over the very beginning. And at this time, there are these two types of teachings that were going on. Uh, one from 30 uh, B.C. to A.D. 10. His name was Rabbi Hillel. He was very liberal in his teaching on this issue, very liberal in his understanding of what 
a, a person could do to be divorced. Matter of fact, it had gotten so bad that men were divorcing their wives at a breakneck pace. Uh, a man could have his dinner burned by his wife and he could freely divorce her. The culture was off the rails. And so we know just from this question and culturally what was going on, um, Rabbi Hillel's teaching had permeated so far and so deep into the, the thought process of the Pharisees, so far removed actually from Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters, that they're now asking him a cultural question. They're not asking him a biblical question. They're not asking about the will of God. They're asking him about someone who has now taken something from God's word, twisted it, expanded it, and now that is their mindset of even asking the question to begin with. Are you with me? And so this is exactly what was happening. They're no longer thinking from God's uh, framework. They're now thinking from what did someone say to me? What is the, the culture that's now permeating all around me? How do other people think about this issue? Not what does God's word think about this issue? This is a challenging situation for Jesus. He challenges their traditions. But what Jesus said here is, is uh, pertinent to how we understand marriage. And if you've noticed in our culture, there's, there's a robust discussion about gay marriage. Uh, typically, one of the arguments that's brought forward the most, and what I'm speaking to more now is uh, specifically in denominations that are now sanctioning uh, same-sex marriage. And one of the arguments is, well, Jesus never actually says anything about homosexuality. Well, Jesus never actually talks about two men who are in a, live, a loving, committed, monogamous relationship or two women. What is missed is that Jesus actually makes a statement right here that's profound. The statement that he's making is not telling you what marriage isn't. He's telling you what marriage is. If you read the text again, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus replies in verse 4. He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. This is a profound statement. If you get a chance sometime, read John chapter 1. And here's, I'll, I'll break it down to you this way. This is what John chapter 1 says. You have God's will for his people. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, speaks God's will. So in creation, he speaks all things into being. And then we see in, John, and we see in Genesis that the Spirit hovers above the waters. It's the Trinity even in the creation event. You have God's will to create, the second person of the Trinity that speaks all creation into being. And then we have the Holy Spirit that grows and sustains creation. Translation, you sitting here, you have God's will for your life. How do you know God's will? Well, Jesus told you. You want to know the Father's will? You have to know me. So Jesus speaks. What grows and sustains your faith? The Holy Spirit. What they did at creation, they continue to do in the lives of men and women sitting in this room. So that statement right here, uh, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female, is significant. Jesus isn't talking about some event that happened with some other person in some other time. He's referencing something that he was intimately involved in. That he spoke. And he doesn't go back on his word. He wasn't confused about what would happen thousands of years later. He didn't lack the insight of where the culture would be. Let me just read something speaking of culture because another thing we tend to think is sometimes that um, this was like 2,000 years ago was like the Andy Mayberry show. 
uh, and now we've become advanced, and, and now we are enlightened. But back then, they were just a bunch of Neanderthals, right? So let me, let me, let me read something for you. His name was Tacitus. Now, Tacitus, uh, he was a Roman uh, governor. He was a Roman uh, historian. Uh, he took uh, events as they were, and he was not a Christian, and he, and he chronicled them. Uh, one of his books is called uh, Annals, A-N-N-A-L-S 15, XV. You can look it up. His writings, those actually carried on throughout the ages. And he's talking about Nero. Now, Nero was the Caesar. He was the leader of the Roman Empire. He was actually, uh, Nero was alive and leading and ruling at the time that uh, 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 Peter got crucified upside down. He was alive and in power under his reign and rule is when uh, Paul got his head cut off. It's during that same time that this person is leading and running things. Tacitus tells us this. Nero, who polluted himself by every lawful or lawless indulgence, had not omitted a single abomination which could heighten his depravity. Till a few days afterwards, he stooped to marry himself to one of the filthy herd. By name, Pythagoras. With all the forms of a red, regular wedlock, the bridal veil was put over the emperor. People saw the witnesses of the ceremony, the wedding dower, the couch, and the nuptial torches. Everything in a word was plainly visible, which even when a woman weds, darkness hides. Let me explain to you what happened. So finally what happens is Nero gets married. And Nero, I think it's in his fourth marriage, marries as the bride. Nero puts on the veil. Nero proceeds to take on the position in the relationship as the woman. This is the leader of the Roman Empire. There's nothing new in culture. Nothing has changed. Hearts are still broken. Depravity still runs wild. And people still need the gospel. They still need Jesus they still need a message of hope. 2,000 years ago, the culture was off the rails. And if you ever lose hope or lose confidence in what God is doing today, can I just tell you that God transformed the world 2,000 years ago and he'll do it again and continues to do it again. Meeting people right where they're at. So I want you to look at verse 5. Jesus goes on to say, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let one, let no one separate. Now here's what really like, Jesus is kind of saying. Um, those of you, uh, if, you've, if you've been married, one of you is, uh, is, is a glass of milk, okay? And the other one, uh, you can decide who that is. Uh, you know, you or your wife or your husband is the, the thing of Ovaltine or Hershey's, you know, whatever, okay? And what happens is when you mix the two, these are two separate entities. And what Jesus is saying is basically when you mix these two, they become something entirely different. There is no separating out chocolate from milk anymore. It's now a new thing. It's chocolate milk. It is what it is. And Jesus' point um, to the Pharisees and even to the astonishment of the disciples is this. There is no concept of a divorce, a separating out. That was, was not the creation, was not the point. That wasn't the principle, it wasn't the idea. 
And so we move on to verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus corrects them. He says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted it, not commanded it, he permitted it. Why did he do that? He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Once again, what does Jesus do? He points back to creation. Men's hearts were never meant to be hard. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This term, sexual immorality in the Greek, is pornea. Pornea. Um, So let me just say a few things about sexual immorality. Young people in this room... um, the culture is telling you that sleeping around with whomever you want, it's no big deal, it doesn't matter, it's not going to change your life, it doesn't disturb your life, so on and so forth. Can I just tell you what I found in my years in youth ministry? And you can either take this to, to heart or you can ignore me. But uh, I can tell you right now what I'm about to tell you is the truth. Um, only your mind knows that you were just dating. Young people, did you catch what I said? Only your mind knows you were dating. Your body, your heart, and your soul have no idea. They have no idea. And lo- let me, before I even move on to the idea of, uh, to we get too far into pornography, let me just say, parents, to your kids, uh, fighting for your kids' marriage now while they are teenagers, how do you do that? Do they have to have their cell phone in their room at 2 a.m.? Is that necessary? Do they have to have their own TV in their own room? Is that necessary? Do they have to have their own computer? I know little Johnny is so sweet. And he's so good. And he would never look at anything wrong. Can I just tell you, most likely he has and most likely he will. That doesn't mean he's bad. It just means he's a little sinner, okay? And you can love your little sinner. That's good. Not even a smile in here. Wow, that's brutal. Okay. It's okay. But can I tell you, I'm being very serious. Parents, you've got to fight for those people's marriages right now, your children. You fight for them now as a teenager. So let, let, let me just kind of outline a little bit of how this works. Pornea, what, or, we'll go a different direction. Let me, say, let me put it to you this way. Those of you that are new to this church, we are what's called Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So what we believe is that the public office, the public office of a pastor is only held by a man. Now, would it surprise you that in all of the LCMS statistics, we are yet to have a single case of a pastor who's had an abortion? Isn't that impressive? Not one. We're doing great. Here's my point. Um, Are we pro-life? Absolutely. Am I pro-life? Absolutely. Should we stand for the unborn? Absolutely. Should we move and press in to that teenager and what they're going through in their life? Absolutely. But do I or any of my friends in ministry have a clue what it's like to be a scared 16-year-old girl? No. Do we have a clue about that heartache? So let me just, I'm not trying to be cynical. What I'm saying is it's a lot easier to march on Washington, D.C. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's easier, okay? So here's my point with pornea, okay? 
Tell me, have you seen such fervor and strength and unity of pastors nationwide standing up with one voice against pornography? Why do you think that is? It's the dirty little secret of our culture and it's the dirty little secret of our churches and it's the dirty little secret of our pastors. Some statistics would say that up to 50% of pastors either struggle with or engage in pornography. Kind of hard to take a stand, isn't it? Kind of hard to be vocal. So l- let me tell you how the, the, the industry does this, because I don't know if you knew this. Um, the porn industry actually pulls in more money than our three major sports combined. Did you know that? It is an unbelievable money-making industry. But in order to do that, in order to hook your kids and to hook you as adults uh, and, and the women in this room, you've just got to sell it in different ways. That's how you've got to do it. So for men, for example, all you need really is images, okay? Uh, a man doesn't need dialogue. Uh, he doesn't need a plot. He doesn't need a storyline. He doesn't even need talking, okay? Uh, we, we don't need any of that, and we can get hooked immediately. Now, for women, you just have to change it up. There you need words. You need plot. You need romance. And what we do then is we don't call it pornography because women may never want to look at it, right? No, no, we call it romance novels, right? Erotic thrillers. And so then we pull you into this world like kind of a, like the, the number one e-selling book a few years ago of Fifty Shades of Grey. And what we leave out is the sequel, which would be Fifty Shades of Counseling. So we just want you to believe how great this could all be. And and so then the message to women, if you've ever caught this, ladies, in this room, is that it's trying to pull you into a fantasy world to where your husband finally just looks like a fat, boring slob, right? What does he even do? He's not exciting. He's just a regular man, right? Well, how can he compare with the guy in that book? Who is that? A multimillionaire who, uh, uh, first of all, is really distant, emotionally disconnected, but he loves his mom? It's a walking contradiction, right? He'll use you for sex, but he will fly you all over the world and introduce you to his family at Thanksgiving. And what's the message in the books? What's the message in the movies? If you've ever caught it, he's such a messed up person. But you know what can save him? You know what can save him? The power of your love. Once she walks into the screen, once she walks into the book, once she walks into the story, he's saved. She saved him from himself ladies no offense okay your love doesn't change a man and your love can't save a man that's Jesus's position in that man's life flat out okay and then for for men it's very very different see for men it's I get instant gratification right here and right now So then the wife is having to compete with a perpetual, chronic 22 to 25-year-old that apparently finds everything about the opposite sex such a turn-on. And so then a man fills his mind with, well, I don't get it. I walked in the living room. I mean, I'm here, right? I mean, what do you you need? Why? Because in his psyche, that's all it takes. I just got to show up, right? Never mind the fact you haven't wowed or wooed or dated that woman in five to ten years maybe that's the issue and she's disinterested 
And she's competing with something that never ages, never changes, and isn't even real. Can I just tell you that the women, by the way, in those films, okay, uh, have a real, uh, not even ability, but an aspect to who they are that's able to disassociate from reality, which is a defense mechanism, which actually stems from an overwhelming majority who've either been raped, molested, sexually assaulted at some point in their lives, if not early years, even into their teen years. And have also most likely been introduced um, to hardcore pornography often as a young person. It's not what you think it is. It's not what you see on the screen. And can I tell you what's happening? Is pornography is feeding on the men in this room, statistically speaking. It's ripping out the soul of our churches. It's destroying the church. It's destroying men. It's taking their ability to fight for their wives, to fight for their children, to be godly men. It's robbing them blind. That's what it's doing. Make no mistake about it. And we're just eating up brokenness. We can't get enough of it. We can't get enough of these broken lives on a screen. My, my goal this morning, and, and some of you may be indignant and may really be offended that I'd even go there. And, and if that is, if that's you, fine, take that up with Jesus, okay? But the vast majority, I'm sure, in this room that have this struggle, uh, you may be feeling a certain level of guilt and you may be feeling a certain level of shame. And I only bring this up this morning because I want you to know that Jesus wants to set you free. Men, he wants to set you free. He's not discouraged by you. He doesn't despise you. But he doesn't want you caught in this mess. Women, which are on the rise in this issue, he doesn't want you hooked on this anymore. He wants to set you free. He wants you to be the husband and the wife that reflects Christ and the church. A man that would serve and sacrifice and if need be give up his life for his bride. And a woman who would love and respect and honor this man. And so I just want to tell you this morning, I mean there's a whole host of issues and I know I touched on a whole bunch of stuff. I mean that could be six weeks of sermons just in one and I get that. I want you to know that if you're a young person and you're struggling with pornography this morning, if you are a husband or a wife who's struggling with pornography this morning, uh, if you have gone through a nasty divorce and quite frankly, you don't feel like your heart will ever heal, if you're the child of a divorce and for some reason there's just aspects of relationships that don't work for you and it's because what you saw was hurtful and painful and creates hesitation within you. Whatever it may be in this room, I want you to know that that's why Jesus came. It wasn't fire insurance from hell. It was to meet you here and now in your pain and in your depravity and your brokenness, just like he did under the time of Nero. That's what he wants for you, to set you free. To set you free and to have an identity in Jesus and Jesus alone. Your God loves you.